Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to, what happens in schools. Education is taking place whenever and wherever we are willing to learn. I am your host, Roberto Germán, and our classroom is officially in session. Monday, January 17th, Multicultural Classroom hosted an MLK Summit facilitated by Lorena Germán. We had some powerful guests join us for 15-minute chats in which they reflected on the life and legacy of MLK and how it impacts us today. How Martin Luther King Jr.'s work applies to the work that we engage in today. And we featured Jose Luis Vitzong, Tiffany Jewell, Tamara Russell, and Trisha Abarvia. Take some time to listen and extract the gems that they offered in these 15-minute chats. I'm going to share some excerpts now. Welcome to this you know, little live. I'm happy everybody's here. Um, Jose is the founder of EduColor, among many other things, and middle school math teacher for many, many years in NYC. Um, he's also Dominican-American, and so that makes him basically like my brother. Um, Jose, what else? What did I miss? There's a lot, but... Oh, obviously the author... Well, I should have pulled out your book. The author of This Is Not A Test. It is behind me somewhere. Um, what else, Jose? Father, husband, um, dad joke creator. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Your fame identities. Your fame. Oh my god! Yeah, mm -hmm. dad joke creator. Mm -hmm. Sure. Be out here. <laughs> You're gonna add that to your resume. It's out here. Yes. Okay, so let's get started. What I wanted to talk about with you was MLK's legacy. Um, and here's why I, I crafted the, the prompt that I crafted. Um, a lot of people see him as, and teach him as um, this figure from the past who existed in a time that was so bad then, right? Like this historical, and in some cases even mythical figure, right? Because he's unattainable and his legacy is bigger than him. And, and it is, you know, in many ways. Um, and so I just wanted you to talk to us about what, what does his legacy look like today? How do we actually see it around us? How does his work still live on? Um, and, and how maybe has it impacted you? Wow. I mean, this, this is a profound question and one I've been pondering for at least the last, um, seven, eight years, if I'm honest with y'all. Um, and <laughs> you know, me just uh getting close to 40 now you know he did pass away at a tender age of 39. a lot of people kind of uh haven't thought about what that looks like to become this transformative figure at such a young age you know um his his work went from 26 i think is when he really considered himself part of the movement till like 39 we're talking about a wide span of different things and the world was changing pretty quickly right under his feet in so many ways and he was part of the reason why i did that too so some things that are worth considering one is that uh, uh there's a lot of folks especially those of us who are about that life who will say uh america likes their black people dead <laughs> they like when the civil rights leaders and 
the folks who are going to transform the world are dead because they know how to situate them, dilute them, and then, you know, hopefully commercialize them in some way, shape, or form. And no true example is that true, with, except with MLK. I mean, we see the same thing kind of with Rosa Parks as well, where it was just like some lady who sat on the bus and not like someone who was very intentional about what she saw with, well, with Claudette Colvin, for example, and use that as a strategy to try to make change with the Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, similarly, even with Malcolm X, where people was like, oh, he's a great civil rights leader. People hated these folks. They hated them at the point in time. In fact, I think it was a statistic. I, just before he died, they, they put out a poll, and I think two-thirds of America hated him. They gave him a I mean, they hated him so much they killed him. Hello? I mean that's what it that's what it is. And that's what people a lot of people don't get is that like um Right, when, right. He didn't like just die from a heart attack or like this one mean guy. There was an entire nation that that uh you know motivated that person who was part of a collective. Yes. So that's that's kind of the underpinning of what I'm about to say now, which is like there's other some other things that are worth considering. The civil rights movement, specifically the uh, SCLC, which is this organization, they weren't trying to run an, a movement on piety. They were trying to run a movement on social and racial justice. And so that means that anybody and everybody can serve. And that's what a lot of folks don't get is like, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to like look at your resume and say, oh my gosh, like just because it's a little flaw, that doesn't mean I get to, it means I don't get to be part of this movement. Um, and it, across, this cuts across all genders, cuts across all races, all classes. Like his movement was intergenerational, They're very much trying to connect to every single body that possibly wants to put their hands in things. I mean, and of course, like even his shift to an anti-war stance didn't come originally from him. It came from Coretta, Scott King. And she was the one who was the, the more radical of the two when it came to thinking about anti-war stances. So uh, when it comes down to it, uh, we have to be thoughtful about uh, just A, how we want to engage, but then B, that we don't have to necessarily be perfect in order to be great. And so that's something for us to consider when it comes to MLK's legacy. And then hopefully the third part uh, in my mind is that we have to read, <laughs> we have to rethink what it means to be a faith leader. Um, this actually comes from a conversation I've had with a, another faith leader who we engage with, uh, Zakia Jackson, out of the Expectations Project. Something I've been thinking about is what does it mean to lead with faith? Like, and it, it's got to go just beyond religion because we've seen how often that's been bastardized. And really, I'm okay called that out in the uh, letters to Birmingham, from Birmingham jail, right? Where he basically, he wasn't just calling out white moderates. He was basically saying, like, I lead with the actual example that was laid out for me by Christ and all the folks and who I follow. And he calls out the clergy too, right? He calls right. out the clergy. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, think about how Jesus called out the the Pharisees, right? Um, but people don't want to hear that. They just want to hear like the diluted version. But it's just facts. Like, or people, bunch... you know, people will and they'll say those Pharisees, right? Those people, and not consider your parallels with those people and the ways that there's Pharisees in all of us <clears throat> at different times of our lives and in different ways. You know, even even in the present, right? Facts only. And so uh, for me, I, I'm looking at MLK's legacy as one that says, we, we all get to serve. We all get to be a part. 
we and it's not just about day on versus day off or where you're going to volunteer at. it's like what's your life's work on a day-to-day -day basis and is it always going to be every single day every single hour not necessarily because even uh mlk regretted some of that too and felt like he needs to change his schedule the day before like he got murdered he said i need to change my schedule I need to change my ways so i want to be more with my family like i'm not laughing as often as i used to mm. so forth um but it isn't to say like you're so the thing is about work too like what does it mean to actually put in work it isn't just to like burn yourself out surely but it's also just not to like sit there at some point we got to do things and we do things in community so those are things that like you're making me think about as i talk about mlk's legacy because it is so profound yeah i think too like one of the things whatever you said many things but one of the things you said made me think about um you know that piece you just added right there about work and how we overwork and setting those boundaries for the self i think those are some of the ways that we see his legacy today right like we see mlk alive if you will in the vigor of our current political movements, right? We see that there. We see that in people's dedication to current social justice movements. Um, I think that I also, and I wanna unpack this in the next four minutes. I think I also see it in education, certainly through those of us in our respective fields, whether it be math and literacy or just education in general that are dedicated and focused right on bringing about change in our field um, that serves social justice for the for all of us. Um, but then I, I feel like I also see it in education in this general like whitewashed way, which is definitely problematic. And okay i also wrestle with like okay but and and right like it's also somewhat normalized to talk about him even the most non-social justice educator can have an mlk quote up on their wall sure. which i think is is in a twisted way a good thing right that there's at least this baseline for like as you were saying everybody can have a conversation about him about his work and engage with it and i think there's power in that do you want to say anything on that in our last three minutes they took i think it took a lot of work for us to get to that point right like it took a lot of movement building i mean any number of people played their role you folks even like stevie wonder um and of course all the folks who like uh there were celebrities putting it out there that we needed mlk day to highlight and elevate the message of social and racial justice in this country and what that took to not just help like black Americans, but to help every single body get a piece of what we consider uh, America, right? This American experience that we're, that we're going through. Something else you're making me think about too, is just how um, there's this level of danger that is often associated with the work that we do. And of course, I'm always curious about what that like line is and what that border is, because that's the part where we have to actually like start pushing a little bit just to find out where we can do better, right? Like for me, I felt like there was a point last year where I was kind of nervous that anti-racism was going to be too commonplace, right? And then it was like, oh snap. So then all these folks feel like they uh, are well aware of anti-racism. So then what's the next work? Because obviously we're not even close to where we want to be, especially for folks, folks who are in the margins, right? But now that it's become even more dangerous to do so, I'm like, oh. So right, right, we'll keep it. That, Let's keep it. <laughs> that part, 
part, right? And then right. we can tap into anti-capitalism, anti-imperialism. I mean, he talked about the three three biggest evils, right? Which is the war, poverty, and um and militarism, right? Well, and racism as well. I'm sorry. But uh generally speaking, yeah, we have a lot of good work to do in education, and I'm really looking forward to folks who aren't just doing it for popular reasons, right? Because right. he became, like I said, he became super unpopular, even among his own people, even folks who you think they should know better. All of a sudden it's like, oh, you're talking about war now. That You're crazy. You shouldn't be doing that. Um, it's like, right. no, actually he had, he felt like he had a moral stance when it came to issues of war, issues of capital. So when he started that poor people's campaign, it was like, oh, he's dangerous now, right? So right. It's, it's, worth, it's worth us considering those of us who are in education to think about that which is just, even when it's not popular. Absolutely. I'm gonna leave us with this. I think that is probably a very interesting study to take on with students in a class, right? What was he talking about at the start and maybe throughout? And what were the consequences? He would be attacked, right? He would get in prison. People would try to silence him. People would tell him stop. But then he moved into this new phase of his leadership and his, and his approach and beliefs, right? Which then made him dangerous, as you're saying. And at that point, none of those consequences were enough. He had to be killed. And so that's something. And then for us educators today in 2021, what, what is it that makes us dangerous? And how can we toe that line, right? In order to bring about some change, as you said. All right. That's it. Our time is up. Okay, okay, okay. So I'm really excited for our combo. Not more than the rest. They're all going to be great. And so good. Yeah. I'm really interested in this specific conversation because in our effort to honor MLK, to talk about this day and his quotes and all the great things that he's done, sometimes we don't think about the lessons we learned about possibly what not to do, mm -hmm. right? Like, what could have been different? What could have been better? In a way that is still honorable and respectful, but certainly like humanizing him, right? Like he wasn't, he wasn't a saint. He didn't do everything great, right? Like he made mistakes just like anybody would. And so yeah. I think it's so important for us to think about um, just to think about that, right? So I'm just going to ask you, what do you think? What should we not do? What are some of the complexities of his approach, of, right. of the movement? Go. Yeah, and there's like different levels of it too. I've been thinking a lot. I like wrote down my thoughts earlier and now I'm like, maybe they're all different. Who knows? Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that I really have been thinking a lot is the like, I don't want to say silencing of Coretta Scott, but not the like amplifying of her. She was so integral in the the work and in, in organizing, in um, helping him understand his uh, political leanings and um, really kind of uh, shedding light on like what's, ha you know, like she really pushed him to be anti-Vietnam War. And we... We never, we didn't learn about that for one thing, but like he didn't do the work of amplifying that either. And that to me is like one of those just kind of like, as you like process it more, you're just that. Yeah, you know? right. Like that's a big gap. I know yeah. that in, in more recent years, I've learned and seen more amplification of women in the movement in general, right? Yeah. Beyond yeah. Rosa Parks. Yeah. Um, and I wonder how much of that was him, 
How much right. of that was the people around him? Right. How much of that was just historians, right? right. And it's probably all of the above. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. But to your point, right? Like, there's so much missing from our understanding of the movement and even of his role in the movement, yeah. specifically in terms of the the way that women were integral, core, central, the life. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and like we we heard, like we knew how integral for the most part how integral women were in the black panther party movement mm -hmm. and we didn't see that so much in the civil rights movement like women were more like props mm -hmm. and weren't given it the... seemed that way right right being presented as such right. that's not right. It. right and i think that's a part of like the flaw too was like how to appeal to everybody right and yeah. like some movements of the time were like we don't need to appeal to everybody right what do yeah. you think about um is this something i don't know yeah. do you do you i'm sure that young women were central and all of the things in SNCC, right in the student mm -hmm. nonviolent uh committee but like how do we um i guess my question is like is that is it taught that way i don't know because i've never i never learned about SNCC in school that was just my own learning and and reading but it's it's not right like that's mm -hmm. also not at least like when i was in school and it you know it was maybe like a paragraph <laughs> right. it wasn't and i think that's like the work of the teacher who's teaching it the lecturer like they have to bring in their own learning from that right and and that's you know that's how it like continues to be i think yeah. i was also thinking about one of the flaws too and this isn't like necessarily one um in particular of martin luther king jr's but it is like of ours and societies is the really like and, and this is like a holdover of, uh, of white supremacy culture as mm. is that like idealization you know the idol idolization the like really the boosting him up right as the exceptional so much so that he wins the nobel prize right right and it's like that individual over the movement that work together and it, i think like that is something we still do so much today thank you jose um and uh, we do so much of it. And even like what I see this like wave of like anti-racism work, there's only like a few folks whose like opinions matter the most. When you're like, actually like this work has been happening forever and it is the work of community and people doing it together that is like um, affecting change. That's right, that's right. Yeah, that's such a critical piece. Cause then what happens, which literally is what happened is that when that person is gone for whatever reason whether it's death whether it's resignation stepping back right like your entire movement is in jeopardy now yeah. right and yeah. it's not like the civil rights movements work and, and i'm calling the movement here in this case like the group right the people right um it's not like the work was over things were not achieved uh right like even certain things were achieved after right. um as people continue to press in and advocate and fight for change um yeah so, okay, so those are two, right? So one is the 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 silencing or, I mean, let's just call it silencing because that's yeah. what's happening, right? The silencing yeah. of women, um, in particular, Coretta Scott King, and the, the um, lifting up of that one person leader modelship. Yeah. Uh, leadership, sorry, model leadership. Um, yeah. Any other lessons yeah, for us? Yeah, mm -hmm. and it, this is like, the um kind of the articulation of growth you know and i think it's like one thing to you know society who was like 
they loved him for a quick second and then they started hating him all over again um how they were really like quick to embrace certain lines and we see this too and how like picked out oh, yeah. um what his his thought and in his words are but to for him to really like move into really advocating and pushing for equality for everyone really working in the poor people's campaign really working with um black uh janitors really uh calling out um northern allies mm -hmm. on like you know you got to handle your own people before you like put it on the south right um which we see so much you know still today Still today um, and I think really kind of uh, that his messaging on his vision got really muddied his vision I think um, it, it continued to stay the same and was centered around and love and equality and justice but his vision for what equality and love and justice like continued to grow as humans continue to grow um, and I think that um, the articulation of that growth Mm -hmm. never happened you know and we know like the media from from other folks we we know that um other leaders who were once with him were like mm -hmm. we're gonna call you out like you can't be anti-vietnam war and you're like oh actually he can't it makes perfect sense um <laughs> and we could have seen this growth coming if we didn't have our blinders on that's right and to jose's point earlier about when he gets killed right like mm -hmm. that's critical um that's such a critical point of study and, re uh, and of reflection yeah. not only his age right that he yeah. was so young to your point about the articulation of all the things right like for him to really flesh out his thinking and his vision and for us to see um his and everybody else around him like all of their their work for us to really see that come to fruition it just it, it is a loss that still hurts mm -hmm. right one and then two when I think about him, when I think about uh, Malcolm X, when I think about some of the other folks who leaders in this movement that were starting to reach more of a middle ground in some yep. way, right? They were right. starting to align themselves. Right. Um, whether that was happening right. through conversation or just kind of like their own becoming, right? Yeah. Um, they were getting to a point where now in hindsight, you're like, oh, snap, this was about to get real yep. serious. Yeah. Yeah, and you that's know, like, when they die, right? Mm -hmm. And it's that, like, as a kid, we used to joke, like, you go out, you have to go out in numbers, strength in numbers. But it is, like, look at all of, like, how, you know, I always think of, like, how people really kind of pit Malcolm X and uh, Martin Luther King against each other. And you're like, actually, no. Like, they were coming together. And I think about, like, Stokely Carmichael and um, his work. And, the, and it's just, like, they were all they all had different paths to get to the same vision and you have to like work your way into that yeah figure out how you're getting there but once you get to that like place where you're where you're aligned and converged like that's so powerful and that's like why we see what like it's why what happened happened why yeah. he was assassinated like the country was like we can't have this right so we're gonna too much we're gonna let people know mm -hmm. uh-huh that's too much um Tiffany, let's use our last three minutes to speak, to bring this conversation to education. What, mm -hmm. what about these lessons can speak to teachers in yeah. schools? Yeah, I think for me, it is um, the work of that 
that understanding that clear vision right and not just for the teacher to hold all of that knowledge but to like not and not just to like share it with the kids but to co-create it with the students and the families and the other people in the school community um because once we all know what it is that we're fighting for we can actually do that work together and then i also think of um just like really doing the work of telling the truth like not just talk about the civil rights movement as this thing that happened and then like hey we got the the voting rights act and we got you know um and and like it's not done like we're still working on it and we're also like still um, trying to understand what it means to have these like great divides in our country, right? Like we still haven't done anything um, in our country to create policies to support poor people. Like we're still, there's still a war on poor people. There's still a war on black people. And every day, every day. And uh, like, I really would love for, for us to Mm -hmm. do that work with young folks to really show them like that misuse and abuse of power mm. um, to really kind of pull that love into the center. Right. So That's we can right. like continue to fight for, for humanity. Mm. Yeah. Yes. You are leaving me with a thought. Um, and that's how I'll wrap this up. And it's, you know, we have this tendency as teachers to want to have the spotlight, to be the hero, to oh, be the savior. Yeah. Um, and yes, a lot of that is gendered and it's racialized, right? Um, and so I feel like one of the lessons for us to learn, um, or, or one of the lessons that we've learned from him or should have learned from him and we should apply into our practice is to do away with that just for that, for that reason alone, right? Um, what happens if you're out? What happens if you need to leave that job? Does right. the work in that classroom stop? The answer right. is yes. If it was resting in you, if you were right. the leader, the sole leader, and it was right. just your vision and you're the savior, yeah. um, and you're not there, there ain't nobody gonna get saved, right? That can't work that way. That's right. not real saviorism, right? Like that's not real liberation, that's saviorism, which is a whole different situation. Right. Um, thank you yeah. for these words. Thank you thank for you. First chat this morning was with Jose Luis Bilsong, and we talked about his legacy. We talked about like what what did they achieve? What does it mean for us? Um, with Tiffany Jewell, we talked about some of the flaws of the approach. We talked about what was missing. What what have what can we learn from what did not happen as it should have happened? Um, and then now with you, we're going to talk about his influence. How do we see it today? And, and also a little bit more personally, what does he mean to you? What has his work meant in your life, both just as a woman, as a black woman, but then also as a teacher? What does that you know, mean in the classroom and for you professionally? So go ahead, take off. I was so excited to listen to Tiffany and Jose this morning. And it was like, water on my soul to listen to. I love when people are reflecting on their practice and both Tiffany and Jose model that um, instinctively. It's authentic to the person that they are. And so I just lived in those lives. And I thank you so much for creating a space for people to kind of um, have conversations where we get to be reflective. Um, I think it's something that's missing in teaching and uh, we need to go back to in order to help one another collectively to improve our practice right so like just i mean even that what you just said like i think the expectation is that a lot of us have it figured out 
we're ready to go we have the answer or even an answer and sometimes it's like no i'm still in process keep going yeah so i think when you asked me to think about this um there was just so much like i i mean there was so much that i was thinking about and as a person with adult adhd my brain just had like 15 different tabs open because i was so excited about how there's so much of a juxtaposition between the work that Dr. King did um, in his identity as a teacher and my own life. And as I've been doing my own learning and unlearning, that I was able to see that over the last couple of years. So one thing I was thinking in terms of, in thinking about Dr. King's identity as a teacher, I was thinking about myself as a teacher, right? A black Latina. And I never had a, a black teacher. I never had a Latina teacher. And so when I became a teacher, I never had a model for what being a black teacher was, right? Um, and so my first, my earliest memories as a teacher of who I idolized was Miss Frizzle. I, I told people all the time I was going to be the black Miss Frizzle. I'm such a fan. Yes, I was going to be the Black Miss Frizzle, and that was my identity for a long time. And then I started to unlearn and relearn. And I thought it, I started thinking to myself, who were the teachers who led the movement, right? When you think about Brown versus Board, Brown versus Board occurred in the 50s, right? 54. Mm -hmm. And those teachers, what were they saying? Because whatever those teachers were saying, that's not really what Miss Frizzle was saying, but that's what you want to say. And so if you're going to draw on that ancestral strength, you need to find out who those teachers were, right? Who taught John Lewis? Who taught Dr. Rodney Hurst, who comes out of Jacksonville and was doing the sit-ins in Jacksonville? Who were their teachers? Because the, the movement was led by children. I think a lot of times as teachers, we don't give ourselves, as, and this is as me as an elementary school teacher, I'm going to speak to that experience because that's really what my, most of my career has been in. But you hear a lot of elementary school teachers say, well, you know, they're only six and they really don't understand and they can't really, ba ba ba. They don't know. They don't know, right? Yeah. And so when we think about who Dr. King was leading, and who was generating this, who he was inspiring, it was children. Like I said, Dr. Hearst, I saw him speak at the All Y'all Social Justice Collective. I bought his book and I read it. And I like ate that book up in like a day because he was talking about the movement in Jacksonville. And one of the things that I've started to do as a teacher here in Florida is look at the movement in the context of my own state, right? To talk to my kids about people who were from here. They did this work right here. And who's still doing the work today, right? And so when I think about Dr. Dr. King's legacy, I think about people like Dr. Hurst who went and heard Dr. King speak, right? And he was able to tell me the story of when he came down here um, and he spoke with Thurgood Marshall. He actually called Thurgood Marshall Thurgood, which I was like, I floored by that, right? But he said, you know, Thurgood told me that when he came to help the Groveland Ford, they had to put him in a hearse and drive him all the way to Ocala. I had never heard that story before. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, this is the type of teacher I want to be. I want my students to long to listen to these stories, right? So they know who they are and they can draw on the ancestral strength of what it means to be black, what it means to be Latin in this space. And what can we do then with that identity work to then transfer it into actual action, right? What does it look like to have young people in a movement where they feel like they're making change and just the work of unpacking my responsibility as an elementary school teacher what does that look like how do we do that to me it starts with teaching kids about collectivism 
and the power in collectivism. And I loved what both Tiffany and Jose said in their chats about the fact that sometimes we miss that about King's time, that King was one person, but that he was surrounded by all of these strong black women who did this work. And a lot of times as elementary school teachers, we don't center those voices because we're talking about Dr. King and he had a dream, right? But that is very, that is very limited in its scope. And it doesn't give the, the students the understanding that really what they should be taking from the story of Dr. King is that he was an organizer. He was a teacher and he was an organizer and he passionately moved people to working together for a change. And as an elementary school teacher, that is definitively work we can all do, right? In our own spaces. Um, and it doesn't have to be overwhelming, even in a state like Florida where people don't really you know, I mean, it's just, just really hard here. <laughs> you know what? You just said something um, that I think taps into one of the issues of uh, surrounding how teachers talk about MLK. And, you know, I, I articulated the other day on something that Britt posted um, when I said how people want to keep him as this mythical figure in the past. But I think also, and, and it's not that, you know, I haven't necessarily thought of that, but I, I just really appreciate how you phrased it because I'm thinking that, you know, one of the issues is that teachers continue to present him as a speaker. Look at the words, look at his speeches, right? And was he those things? He was. But even the speaking was purposeful for organizing, for change making. He was about social justice, the meaning, the, the redistribution of power, not simply going out and, and marching for the look of it, not, not simply to inspire others but that it was a, a, an articulation of, of his effort for social change. It was always about action. In fact, if he, would have made a, if he would not have made any speeches, he would have still been out there doing the work, right? And so I'm thinking about that now. <laughs> I'm thinking about that. What, um, I'm, I know you have other things to say, but I'm, I, one thing that I want to, to pull out of you too is can you talk to us a little bit about um, that personal influence and how it shows up for you. I think for me, what Dr. King's work has always been kind of a bellwether for is resilience and consistency. As an elementary school teacher, I think a lot of times we teach King in a way that what happened in King's time is in the past and that is not currently going on, right? King talked in his I Have a Dream speech, King talked about police brutality, right? We are still having a current conversation about police brutality. And when I think about the things he said, we as teachers are saying a lot of the same things today. And a lot of us are dropping off. A lot of us are too tired to keep going. A lot, the oppression, especially in a place like Florida is so high that so many of us are falling off the pace. And so just listening to him talk about the fight, just listening to him talk about his battles against capitalism, against hypermilitarization, against poverty, hearing him say those things and knowing that he had hope, he believed that at some point down the line, if we continued this collective work, we would, we would at some point reach that promised land, right? It makes me think to myself, the work is still unfinished. And I know Jose has talked about this before, like we shouldn't think about the work as a destination, 
it's a journey, right? But Dr. King's words for me make me remember, Tamara, it's a journey. I'm almost at the end of my career, Lorena. I'm almost at the end. And I can't tell you how many times I am upset by thinking that I'm leaving these children with nobody. Mm. That nobody is going to take my place. That nobody wants to do this work that I have done for 25 years. But Dr. King's words remind me that there will be others. If I keep teaching, keep teaching, keep talking, keep working, keep shining. If I can just keep on. And, you know, we think sometimes this is kind of off topic, but I mean, I think about like when you, when I've taught in the past different classes, when we talked about slavery and people say, how are the slaves so happy that they, that they sang these songs about the, the Bible, right? My faith is what I hang on to. And in the worst times of teaching in my career, that is what I hold on to. And I can still sing and I can still dance and I can still have joy. And I can still tell you after 25 years in the middle of pandemic teaching, I still love this because I draw on that ancestral strength. I draw on listening, reading the words of Ella Baker, reading the words of Fannie Lou Hamer, reading Bayard Rustin, reading Dr. King, reading other people who were doing a work in a time that was uh, uh, just out of, just, I can't even tell you, like when I read about what they were really going through and they had hope still, I can have hope. And it's not over. And when I'm done with this job, when I'm done with this career, there will be others better than me who come and carry on. Because you know what? We see that legacy today when we see the protests in Louisville and in New York and in Minneapolis and in L.A. And in Chicago, when we see unionists working together for the common good, we see Dr. King's legacy every day. When we read his words, it inspires me to try just one more time, just one more time, because Dr. King kept trying until the last day, until they took him from us. He was still trying. Then it, it, if that's all I can do is try, I'm going to keep trying. So that's what his legacy means to me. Listen, it is Monday, but clearly we are at church. Because I think one of, you know, one of the things that you're, you're pointing to that I think is the, one of the most powerful parts of, of his legacy and of his influence is that um, purposeful, um, intentional hope, right? What are our options right now? in the middle of what we are facing sure pandemic but let's even if we didn't have a pandemic we are facing all of this um political oppression right now as educators exactly what what is our option to have hope or to give up and i'm not even going to critique anyone who has decided to leave anybody who has decided to walk away correct from the or their job because this is a correct personal situation so mm -hmm. I, I, i'm not trying to do that what i'm saying is, is that even for those of us that have left or for those of us that you host to stay there there is even hope that exists for all of us because we have to believe not only that we've planted seeds but that our colleagues are going to continue right and that as you're saying that even though in their time whatever many years ago they face in some cases very harsher situations and circumstances than us they chose to endure they chose to press on they chose to have hope they fought themselves i am sure as we fight ourselves today from not giving up and saying i am going to continue i appreciate your account among many um just because of that joy that you do radiate 
right? In the middle of you, you in there with masks on, but guess what? Your colleague can't be there because they're probably out sick. And so y'all are going to dance happy birthday. And it's those little moments that do push people to endure, that push us to be able to say, you know what, I got this, we got this, it is in the collective. Which goes to Tiffany's point about one of the issues being that it was this solitary, or the perception, right? The perception of this solitary leader movement. Um, it was actually the collective that allowed him to endure too, as long as he did. Um, anyway, our time is up. This was so good. It was short, but like, wow, right? Um, I really appreciate you taking a minute to talk to us and, and walking us through this influence that he's had in your life. And I'm hopeful that everybody who joined just caught a whiff of that, <laughs> a whiff of that, you know, spiritual awakening, if you will, um, to get us through today, but also this year. This is a tough year. Any last words for teachers in there right now? How are we going to make it till May, June? We in here together. We are in here together. Um, you are not alone. And a lot of teachers on the outside of this are still working for us, trying to lift us up, trying to write to congressmen and trying to raise funding. There are so many teachers out here raising funding funding for PPE. Like they haven't forgotten us, y'all. We are not forgotten. We are Absolutely. not forgotten. So those who have, have had to move on, they're doing what they can for us. And we just have to keep doing what we can for ourselves and just love one another. So I'm so glad I was here today. Thank you. That's right. We're not forgotten. We are in community. We're not alone. I'm excited to get into conversation with you about the misunderstandings. A lot of people, too many people, misunderstand his message, who he was, what he was about, how we should be applying his stuff today. We see that his content gets uh, co-opted and some people say gentrified. You know, that works too. Um, so just just talk to us. What what do we misunderstand about him? And um, what do you think are, how do you think that shows up in education too? So I think it's interesting because this past week I was doing some lessons with um, kids around MLK. And um, one of the things that I did with kids was, um, and this was a sixth grade classroom, and I talked to them about um, the, uh, this idea of a dominant narrative and the counter narrative, right? Like that there's always like this narrative that dominates, that the dominant narrative isn't always one that is necessarily untrue. Oftentimes it's untrue, but not always. We did an example with ourselves and I talked about how there could be a dominant narrative about me that's out there that which could be wrong or incomplete, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so the kids got it right away. So they were like, oh, like Christopher Columbus. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so the narrative about Christopher Columbus and they knew it and they could name with the counter narrative, with the real story, what the going beneath the surface is, the whole iceberg thing, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so they said, okay, let's talk about Dr. King. What do you think is the dominant narrative about him? Right. And I asked, like, when you think of him, like, what are the first things that come to mind? And what, what grade were you working with? This was sixth grade. So these were like 11, 12 year olds. Yeah. Right. Um, and so and then actually I, I worked with eighth graders too last the same day, like literally the same day. Talked to eighth graders and in both groups. What do you think the words were the first ones that came to mind? I have a dream. Yes, immediately. In fact, one of the eighth graders was like, I can't actually think of anything else that he said. Right. right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that's telling, right? Like right. they know half of that speech, right? Which is called, I have a dream, but they don't know the first part, which is all about systemic racism, about him saying that America has issued a bad check to black Americans. That whole first part is about, um, is a call out. He's basically calling out the US for its failure 
to do right, right? To just deliver on what it promised to do and what it promised to be. People don't know that, right? They just think about all this aspirational stuff. And then I told the kids, you know, I talked to kids um, about, I actually even gave them this piece and I'll tweet it out or share it on social media later. Um, I found a piece by a high school sophomore. She wrote this piece and she's a local student to me where I'm in the Lenny Lenape lands outside of Philadelphia. High school sophomore who wrote about the whitewashing of Dr. King's legacy just mm -hmm. published last week. And so I gave it to the students. So look, here's a high schooler about a couple years older than you. Let's see what they say. And it was all about how King was, um, you know, people look at his words and twist them to mean that he was color avoidant, that he didn't see color. And that he, they used King to say like, oh, we shouldn't, that judging someone by the color of their skin means that we should just never acknowledge it, right? That we should just never even acknowledge that you and I have different levels of melanin than other people, right? We should just not even see it. Now, to their credit, the kids were like, I don't understand how you make that leap in logic. <laughs> like, I think they're still young enough. They're like, I don't, I mean, that's mm -hmm. that means, right? Um, so I think that's one way that I think people, they use or twist his words as actually an excuse not to, not to ever talk about race. But that's and not, not to do the work he actually wanted us all to right. do. But that's not actually what he said and that he was far more radical, right? And that, you know, there seems to be broad agreement that he was this great man. I mean, he has this day and it, true, great man. And when I told students that he had a lower approval rating than President, 45, they were shocked, like visibly shocked. They believe that he had a lower approval rating than President 45 back in the day. They couldn't believe when we looked at like FBI documents and the letter that they sent to him that he was on their most wanted list. When I told them that he was jailed 29 times or so, they were like, what? They just like, they're shocked, right? Because, and then the question then becomes why? Right. Because he, his ideas were radical and much more radical than we remember him to be. And like, if we're really honest about who we are, he, who he is, we have to think about all of his ideas, the radical stuff, the radical stuff included, right? And so I think there's this great misconception around him as being like, oh, I'm the peaceful. I mean, he was, but, you know, he also said that um, riot is the, you know, like it's the, the, language, the right. language of the oppressed. That's right. Her, the oppressed, that's what the language is. and. Mm -hmm. Well, forget that too. They want the sanitized version. Mm -hmm. They want the version that's like, let's just not see anything and let's just all get along. And I was reminded of a tweet from, I think it was last year, the year before Clinton Smith tweeted out this idea that, you know, MLK is like this day of service, which I'm not against service. Service is important and necessary. But um, he pointed out that King's legacy isn't about charity. It's about justice. Mm -hmm. His mission, his call to action. It is not, like, we should not be... I mean, yes, help out at a soup kitchen, do these things, but ask yourself why poverty exists in the first place. Right. right? So I think that as educators- Do something about it to the best of your ability, right? Yeah. So I think that they, those are some of the um, biggest misconceptions about him that kids tend yeah. to have. Mm -hmm. and, and actually a sixth grader pointed out to me, um, they said in the room, um, you know, I, he was a great man and I don't take anything away from him, but we don't spend as much time talking about the Black Panthers and we don't spend enough time talking about Malcolm X. And, you know, so I think that there's also another misconception or another way in which people like to pit them against each other. Yes. Right. Black man versus the dangerous black man, right? Like, mm -hmm. and then use MLK to erase those other ones too. 
right? Yeah. Because when we make the choice in our curriculum to select MLK as the rep of the of the civil rights movement, who we spend time on all of January or for that week, then we are choosing to do that at the expense of everybody else, right? And so we leave out the Panthers, we leave out um, SNCC, we leave out all of the women, which came up with, with Tiffany, right? When she mentioned that. And so, yeah, you're right. Here, here's a question for you, Trisha. What, because um, obviously in a lot of our work, we talk about curriculum and the choices teachers make. And so what, what do you think teachers need to consider, particularly those that don't teach history? I think the ones that teach history um, do obviously a better job of a be being a little bit more inclusive, generally speaking, generally <laughs> speaking, because they have to teach a certain time period. And so they have to teach about, um, you know, maybe like the civil rights movement. Whereas in an English class or a math class, the expectation is not that you're teaching about a time period, you choose this person. And so you focus on the person, right? The so what, what, do, what do you think people need to consider so that we can stop um, sustaining and continuing these misunderstandings? Well, I, I, think, I think this is going back to like a dominant narrative. Like question I always ask myself when I'm ever teaching, well, one, I think we have to get away from teaching people and teaching books. Like I think we have to think about like the, teaching about a figure like MLK, Dr. King, teaching a specific book as a English teacher, that's a vehicle to get to bigger learning, right? Mm -hmm. Like I read um, Letter from Birmingham Jail because I want to understand not just Dr. King or not, that's not the end goal. I read it because I want to understand what does it mean? What does civil disobedience really mean? Mm -hmm. What does violent action look, really look like? What's the goal of it? How do you call in and out folks who have promised you things and have failed to deliver on those promises? How do I look at it as something bigger and beyond than just the man or that, you know, that particular text? Um, so I think one of the things that I would urge teachers to do is always like, well, what is this author, book, whatever, what is this in service of? What is the bigger, what, and then what, and then what is, um, whether you call it a theme or whether you call it a question, what is the dominant narrative that kids are walking into the classroom with about that bigger learning, right? Luca, what is their bigger, what is the dominant narrative about the American dream? What is the bigger narrative about equality or equity? What is the bigger narrative? Like, what are my kids coming into? What are their assumptions? What are the things that they've been socialized to believe? And how do we make it more complex? How do we, again, it's not about taking what kids have learned and saying like, all of that is wrong, like Christopher Columbus stuff. It's saying like, well, wait, let us think about how no, like throughout history or in literature, things aren't one thing. Mm -hmm. Like people mm -hmm. are always more than one thing, right? And how do we help kids? I think I've said this before that education and literacy is a journey towards complexity right more complex thinking that's what we want to get to because there's too many people politicians the media who like operate in sound bites and then like oh this person's good this person's bad this person's canceled this person is this like and, and it's just done but what if there's one habit of mind that i think kids should develop is like well wait i'm not gonna maybe you're right or wrong but i need to know more and i need to come to a conclusion based on multiple perspectives multiple pieces of information, primary sources, let me look for myself and be critical about it. Right, like what's the gray? You know, I talk about that. There's this there's this idea that like, you know, the there's this side or this side or this position and this position and we don't explore 
the way that sometimes actually a lot of people more often than not find themselves more in the middle like i appreciate this about this issue but i also believe this right like there's these none of, none of the aspects of our lives are really that binary in our thinking no trisha we've got about what is it four more minutes can you can you wrap us up by helping us understand the harms right like what are the harms of teachers not addressing these misunderstandings that they might have themselves um and the ones that they perpetrate when they teach young people in this very limited understanding of of civil rights movement of social justice that you know in the country and like him right dr king so what's the harm i think i mean i think the harm is from like a kind of sort of there's well there's a couple places i think there's an intellectual harm mm. because harm is that you're not actually teaching them critical thinking if you are teaching them simplified versions of history and of people and movements right like you that's just there's you're actually that's there's intellectual harm there and lack of practice and deep thinking but then i think i feel like there's an ethical moral harm that's done as well right to allow people to mm -hmm. kind of um settle into easy answers that oftentimes the easiest answers are the ones that confirm our biases right that they're they're more digestible right and so how in what ways are we um you know um helping and nurturing thinkers who are just like oh well that doesn't that doesn't confirm the schema that i already have pre-existing and therefore like that can't possibly be true or that's wrong or i don't want to think about that or now you're lying right. Right? right we unravel that so the expectation is that they're always asking there's what is there more that i have to know about this because there's always 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 going to be more um and so i think it operates on both those levels and then i think because of both those things those skills intellectually and ethical skills i'll say even they affect the way they inform the way they treat other people i mean at the end of the day they inform the way they if they don't if they've never seen or met anyone who looks like me who looks like you right if they don't have that lived experience where they can be in proximity to somebody else where they don't have something that's a counter narrative and you're only teaching the dominant or the that this one side of it what's going to happen when they are out in the world right and they are in your classroom your client not in the world in your classroom with yeah. other and with others like just with with the person sitting next to them in the class and you can't even know what harm can be done because i don't know how many times students have told me that harm like you it's not always like obvious it's not always like harm isn't always um pushing you know, punching it's not always loud sometimes it yeah. student comes later and they're really upset by what another student said they don't say anything in class but they trust you enough to tell you later right how many times does a kid absorb that Mm -hmm. color particularly how many times do they have to absorb those hits over and over again and i think any student um especially but especially students who dominant culture um or are perpetuating the dominant culture and white supremacy like i think that most kids i like to believe that most kids and humans don't want to enact harm but you cannot enact you can't not enact harm from a place of ignorance like you have to actually understand the nuances you have to know you don't know what you don't know so you have to constantly be asking okay is what i'm saying or what's the perspective i'm missing here rather than settling into what's comforting or comfortable right absolutely
Absolutely. A hundred percent. I agree with all of it. I think the only thing I'll add just to wrap us up is that I think a, a lot, I know you've heard this because we've talked about this, right? Since what, 2016, we've been at, not we, people have been saying, <laughs> how did we get here? I, you know, how did our country get to this point? And there are many things that brought us here. And this is one of them. Not, not narrowly just how we teach Dr. King, but the ways that our teaching approaches, what we teach and how we teach is very much about sustaining this dominant narrative and sustaining the comfort of the people who created that narrative, right? Um, and, and sustaining the system of benefit right, to maintain our status quo and to keep things as they are. If, if this country really wanted to change something, they would. We see the way that legislation happens in a second when, mm -hmm. when it's some people demanding change versus others, right? Oh. How many times haven't people been advocating for better curriculum, right, more inclusive, more diverse curriculum, and yet a, a group of vocal parents all around this country said CRT is bad and now we've got legislation um, across multiple states in the country. So this country can make change, right? It just chooses oh. what change it wants. And so I think that's also part of the harm. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, this country is capable of many great things. I mean, so many things, if they have the willingness to actually do those things, right? Like I was at a parent event this morning and we were talking about King's um, stat, his position on reparations, he supported, right? And this idea that um, we just saw during this pandemic, oh, the federal government can send checks to folks. Yeah. Oh, every student can have a computer. Wait, all these things can just happen. Yeah. And then people say reparations, no, like that can't right. happen. How that. would we ever do that? Huh? What? Yeah. Sure. I don't even want to say it's a failure of imagination. It's a failure of willingness evening. Desire. That's right. Value. Value. That's yeah. right. We're revolution of values. That was Dr. King. We need a revolution of values. As always, your engagement in our classroom is greatly appreciated. Be sure to subscribe, rate the show, and write a review. Finally, resources to help you understand the intersection of race, bias, education, and society, go to multiculturalclassroom.com. Peace and love from your host, Roberto Germán.